Welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. I'm Angie, and for this week's episode, we have Dr. Angie Johnson. Angie is currently an assistant professor of psychology at Boston College, where she directs the Canyon Cognition Center and Social Learning Laboratory. Yep, you heard that right, Canyon. She studies dogs. To be more specific, her works take a comparative approach, comparing human learning to domestic dogs learning as a way to examine which aspects of human learning are unique and which are shared among species. In this episode, we are going to talk about one of her most recent work that tries to answer a question that many dog owners might have: Why does my dog sometimes look back at me? To find out, please enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for joining on the podcast with us today. So today we are going to talk about a recent paper of yours titled "Dogs Prioritize Independent Exploration Over Looking Back." Well, we normally will just dive right into the paper itself, but for this one, I think a lot of listeners probably have the same confusion or fascination as I do. Why dogs? Of course, dogs—they are just like wonderful creatures, and they're interesting in their own ways. But most of the time, when people think about psychologists, they don't necessarily think of them as somebody who will study dogs. But apparently, you do. So I guess maybe we can start with talking a little bit about your journey as a psychologist and how studying dog can help us understand human behaviors better. Yeah. So I actually started out being a pure developmental psychologist, studying children and looking specifically at the development of social learning. And then when I started grad school. One of our postdocs had a dog that went to a dog daycare, and we were reading all these articles about this new dog research. And we decided to go to the dog daycare and、um, work with the dogs there. And then we thought, well, this is actually great. Let's open a lab on campus. And so that's how I ended up in dog stuff. Was it was a side project in grad school, and then it just became the love of my life, basically, like most people's research is. And The reason that the dogs are so fascinating is, you know, when we think about comparing humans to other animals, a lot of people think immediately, "Oh, chimpanzees,"、mm -hmm. because they're so closely related to us. And chimpanzees are a great species to compare to humans. But the thing that's interesting is when it comes to social learning, so how they learn from others, they're very different from、mm -hmm. humans. And so, for instance.、Um, Humans are able to follow pointing. So if you hide something under one of two cups and you point at it, humans know that you're telling like this is where to go. Chimpanzees need to be taught that over many many trials, so they don't do this naturally. Dogs do. So even puppies that are six weeks old will、mm -hmm. follow human pointing,、hmm. and they're sensitive to these communicative cues that humans use to signal we're going to teach something. So cues like eye contact. The, High pitched speech like puppy, puppy, look over here. Those sort of cues, dogs are sensitive to those in the same way as human infants. And so, although dogs are not closely related to us at all, they over domestication have become really similar to humans and how they learn from others. And so that's why we study dogs. And another reason the dogs are so fascinating is when we pinpoint, hey, here's something that's Human-like in dogs, we actually can trace 
its evolution over domestication by comparing to dogs, dingoes, and wolves. Mm-hmm. And so it's really cool because um, and we can get into this more, but um, domestication seemed to have happened in a two-part process. So the first stage was called self-domestication. And this is where some um, animals were more comfortable going into human camps and eating the trash that was around. And those animals were more tame and they were more likely to breed together and then have tamer puppies. And so over the course of many generations, these animals became more and more tame. But humans weren't doing anything intentionally. This was just a natural selection process. The second stage humans took these self-domesticated animals and started breeding them for different purposes, like guarding, hunting, herding. And this leads to the dog breeds we have today. And so the thing that we can do is we can see how has self-domestication shaped a trait and how has artificial selection shaped a trait, which gives us two very different models of looking at um, how evolution has shaped these human-like traits. And the dingoes are really interesting because they basically um, were self-domesticated, but haven't been artificially selected. So they give us this snapshot into what happened during self-domestication before artificial selection. So we can compare those three species together, the dingoes, the wolves, and the dogs, and start to see how each of these processes shaped um, this human-like aspect of cognition And then we can start to think, well, what does that tell us about the selection pressures that shape this trait in humans? And so that's why dogs are so great as a comparison species is because basically they allow us to compare to humans and identify, are there potentially unique aspects of human learning that are not even shared with dogs? And then also when the shared aspects are there, how did they evolve? Oh, that's very fascinating. And I guess a natural question that I will have is about how do you study dogs? It's like, I personally work with a lot of infants and I know infant recruitment has been extremely difficult. You will like invite parents, like bring their kids into the labs. And I imagine for dogs, you probably need to like invite their owners and bring their pups into the lab. Yeah, I'm just kind of curious of whether you can say more about how do you kind of conduct a study with dogs? Yeah, so we invite, it's just actually very similar to infant research. We invite families to bring their dogs in. And um, actually, it's having come from a developmental psychology background, I was shocked the dogs are so much easier to recruit because the owners are like, I want to see how smart my dog is. And also, you know, with kids, they have like soccer practice and ballet and all these different activities. Dogs don't have those. And so, right. They're just like being dogs. They're just being dogs. And so people are so excited to have an activity for their dogs and get to see their dog in like a different context. And so we actually... Um, when I was in grad school, we actually would have people get upset because there weren't enough slots for them to sign up. It's been a little bit trickier now with COVID. Um, we don't have quite as many, it's not quite as busy. Um, but, uh, in, in general, it's pretty easy to recruit the dogs and we, we, we work with dogs of all breeds, shapes, sizes. They, um, just have to have had their full set of rabies vaccinations so they can't be um, too young mm-hmm. and um, they can't be aggressive 
we obviously don't want any aggressive dogs like working with us. Um, Mm -hmm. But besides that, we work with all dogs. um, And it's definitely something that uh, families really love to participate in. I guess I'm just kind of curious about since there are a lot of like development psychologists have been transferring studies online. I imagine you can't really do the same thing with dogs. Well, we actually do studies with dogs on Zoom now. Oh my Um, gosh, please. I would love to hear the details about it. (laughs) Yes. Um, So we kind of, what we do is we act as a fly on the wall and we have the owners act as the experimenters. So as one example of a study that we're doing right now, that's actually related to the study that um, we'll be talking about later. Um, We're looking to see when dogs come to an unsolvable task and they look back to their owner. Um, Are they looking back for help? Are they just looking back randomly? And the way we're doing this is we have owners set their computer up so that it gets the whole room. We're on Zoom. We pin their video. (laughs) Um, And then we tell the owners the instructions. And so they basically put a giant bag of treats under a couch, sort of imitating, you know, like when a ball rolls under the couch, the dog looks at you like, Mm -hmm. "Uh, I can't, I need help. Um, And so we have them put a giant bag of treats under the couch. And then we look, we either have the owner paying attention or distracted. And we want to see, is a dog more likely to use this eye contact, this looking back behavior when the owner is paying attention than when the owner is distracted. And so we just give the owners the instructions where we just tell them, okay, you're going to put a bag of treats under the couch. And then when we say go, you either turn around and act distracted or you watch um, and see what the dog does. And so we just, it's kind of, it's great because we have the dogs in their natural habitat, their homes, Mm -hmm. and they don't know we're there. They have no idea that we're there. So there's no influence of us, but it is tricky because we do have a lot more exclusions because mm-hmm. um, owners are not trained experimenters. And so they make more mistakes, but we've done, that's just one of our zoom studies. We've done another, we just finished um, our first round of zoom studies. Oh, that's amazing. And I guess that's also like a perfect transition to talk about the paper that we are going to talk about today, which One thing that I found really fascinating is about this like looking back behavior because I used to have a dog at home and I definitely noticed that sometimes like, yeah, my dog is just like looking back at me, like almost like saying, what's up? Like, yeah. (laughs) And I also know that there's some work in like development psychology showing that when infants are surprised or their expectation is being violated, they will exhibit this like social looks and turn back to look at their parents. But I guess I'm just wondering in terms of the dogs, why did you just like narrow down on this specific behaviors? Like what's special about this looking back? Yeah. So the, there's not a lot of behaviors that we have from dogs that are communicative. Um, And eye contact is just one of the main ways that dogs communicate with us. And so there is a classic study that looked at this um, in wolves and dogs And they found that when there was an unsolvable task that the dogs and the wolves could not solve, the wolves would just keep trying and trying and trying and trying and trying. Whereas the dogs would stop, they would look back and make eye contact. And so that was just the behavior that they like discovered when they were doing that study. And so it's kind of like become a snowball effect where Mm -hmm. that's the behavior that people started using. And so now we all use this behavior and 
I teach a mind of a dog class on canine cognition. And we talk a lot about um, this communication between dogs and humans and how there's a lot of things that this eye contact can mean. Dogs make eye contact to affiliate. Like Mm -hmm. there's um, research that shows that when dogs and humans make eye contact, oxytocin, a bonding hormone is released in both species. And so eye contact can also be bonding. It could be that the dog's just kind of bored at looking at something in their environment. Um, It could be the dog's asking for help. Um, But the reason we use this behavior is because it's just one of the only behaviors that we have that seems to be communicative between dogs and humans. Now, there's new research going on with, I don't know if you've heard about Bunny. Um, Bunny is a dog who's famous on TikTok. um, Mm -hmm. And basically bunny uses these buttons to communicate. And so each button is a different word. And so bunny uses these buttons to communicate. And so people have been starting to use that as a way to look at how dogs communicate, but there's just not a lot. They have their body language, but a lot of the body language is a bit more reactive than it is Mm -hmm. communicative. If that makes sense, that like they may be giving a certain cue because they're anxious or um, whatnot. There is a new study that just came out that's starting to look at head tilts in dogs. Oh my God, those are you know adorable. Do yeah, yes. those are adorable. I haven't read the paper yet. I have it in my queue to read, but um, people are starting to expand um, what sort of cues they're looking at in dogs. But right now this looking back and eye contact is kind of the best one we have. Mm-hmm. One thing that I'm, kind of wondering is about do dogs like communicate with their using eye contact with other dogs because I don't know like mm. where I learned about this but it's like you can like stare at a dog because it's like kind of threatening to them you want to make sure your eye contact is kind of like gentle and it's like not very direct like not very just staring at you like in your eyes is that true um they're definitely sensitive to each other's eye gaze so um you can, they pay attention to where the other dogs are looking. And so eye contact can be communicative in that way, but they don't use it as a signal with each other, the same way humans and dogs do together. So for instance, for humans making eye contact with a dog is a huge communicative signal. It really changes the way dogs um, interpret human behavior. For instance, I mentioned that dogs follow pointing. Mm -hmm. Um, There's this really cool study that manipulates whether the person's making eye contact while they're pointing or if they're looking down while they're pointing and dogs only follow the pointing. If you make eye contact with them while you're oh, pointing, Interesting. it seems like they understand that it's not just some sort of your arm happens to be pointing in one direction. It's that you're making eye contact and saying, I'm giving you a signal right now. And so there's this very special eye contact between humans and dogs that we don't see dogs using eye contact in the same way. Interesting. Do we know what aspect of eye contact is kind of like making this to work on like on dogs? Because I know like there are infants work showing like, yeah, even like things like those plastic goggly eyes will work. Like it's just like yeah. more attention grabbing. Does it work similarly with dogs? Um, people haven't. It's So canine cognition is a very new field. It just started in like 20 some odd years ago. And so no one's that I know of has looked so specifically at, I know the studies you're talking about where it's like just black and white contrast. Um, 
I can't think of any work that's broken it down like that, but that's a really cool question. Yeah. Yeah. It's very exciting new field. And I guess maybe I can um, ask you to kind of briefly talk about, I know you mentioned a little bit earlier about like how the study, like the at-home versions of the study is being done, but do you want to kind of tell our listeners a little bit about how the study is designed and what have you found? Yes. So basically we have dogs come into our lab and the lab's um, a nice big square room. And we have sort of two different Tupperware containers that we use that are access puzzles for dogs. And so dogs first learn how to solve the puzzle by we just put the Tupperware container on top of a lid, but we don't latch it down so they can knock it over really easily. And so they learn over the course of three warm-up trials, like, hey, this is easy. I can get this treat. But then what we do on the last trial is we latch it down. And so you really do need opposable thumbs to get in to the uh, <laughs> container. And so they can't do it on their own. And so what we look at is what do they do when they after they try to solve this and they're finding out I can't do this on my own. And so what classic studies have done like I mentioned with the dogs and the wolves is they've just had one container there and they look at whether the dog keeps trying, how long they keep trying and how long until they look back to their human. And this research, like I mentioned, has shown that dogs tend to look back really quickly and wolves tend to keep persisting and not look back. And so some people have suggested different reasons that dogs do this. So one could be that dogs are actually seeking help, that they realize, hey, I can't solve this. I need help. Let me look at the person with the posable thumbs and let them do it for me. Um, so that's one reason. But other people have said that it may just be that dogs are overly reliant on humans and they just kind of give up and they just look at humans all the time. Like they don't understand anything about whether the task is solvable or not. They just kind of give up and look back. Um, and so what we did was we added a second puzzle a short distance away to give them another alternative. And what we found is that when the dogs were, they would always attempt the first puzzle first, but then they would go to the second puzzle and they would try that puzzle first before they looked back. Mm. So this is suggesting they're not just overly reliant on humans and mm. giving up, they're trying to do independent things first and then they look back for help. Oh, interesting. Um, I guess I'm kind of curious about like, how do you make sure that the puzzles are something very interesting to dogs? Uh, yes, they have treats inside of them and treats become very interesting to dogs. Um, oh. And so we actually, because we thought the treats were so interesting, um, we actually had a reviewer make a really good point, which is that um, it could be that dogs were just excited about the treat in the other location. And so they weren't thinking about the puzzle. They just like thought, treat, let me go try and get the treat. Mm -hmm. So we had another study that we did in this paper where we had a puzzle that had two different solutions. So one way you could solve it is by opening a swivel lid on top. Mm -hmm. And the other way is by tilting a tube that the mm -hmm. treats inside of, so it will slide out. And we basically had dogs learn to use the swivel lid. Mm -hmm. And then on the unsolvable trial, we latched the lid down so they couldn't mm -hmm. do it anymore. And we found that dogs would tend to discover the tilt tube and try that before they looked back. So 
they're also using an alternative strategy on the same puzzle. It's not just that there's another treat nearby. Um, so that's basically how we um, take into account that we had to have something exciting for the dogs, the treats, mm -hmm. but we didn't want it to be so exciting that mm -hmm. they were overly influenced by it. Mm -hmm. I'm also kind of wondering, did you like kind of control for like whether the dogs, I know sometimes like at home, they will have like a lot of like puzzles for dogs and some dogs might be already super experienced in solving the puzzles all the time. And other dogs might be like, what is this? Have you like kind of observed something like, I guess, individual differences in terms of how dogs So behave? many individual differences. Yes. One part of the study I haven't mentioned yet is that if the dogs can't figure out how to solve the solvable trials, we exclude them. Mm -hmm. And we had to exclude a third of dogs oh, because they couldn't solve the solvable trials. Mm -hmm. um, and so one thing that I've thought would be interesting is looking at those dogs who can't figure out the solvable trials and seeing if they pattern any differently. Cause right now we're looking at the dogs that can solve the puzzles. Um, it's possible that there are some individual differences there and it could totally be because some of their owners have um, puzzles at home. Mm -hmm. There is some work also that shows that dogs that are more trained, heavily trained tend to be better at solving puzzles than dogs that are less trained, but our dogs are not very well trained. They mostly know how to sit. Um, mm -hmm. They're not um, highly trained dogs in general that come into the lab. They're just family dogs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually uh, click onto the supplementary information to look at like the individual dogs like list out. I just found it so cute that like each dog <laughs> has a name and a breeze and age. It's like, yep, everybody counts. But I'm also wondering because I, I think I encountered some work on trying to show like different breeds. The dog will show like different temperaments. And I wonder, is that something that can potentially influence? Because I think there's a lot of like pop dog facts oh like this breed is the smartest and this breed is like not so smart something like that so I'm wondering is that like scientifically backed up or or do you think that's something that can matter in terms of how they're behaving in um, in this task yeah the breed breed differences question is such an interesting one and it's it's very complex so basically when we're wanting to look at these thinking of an evolutionary framework, we want to know what are the genetic differences between these breeds. So are we seeing differences because they were selected for different purposes um, in terms of their evolutionary history? The tricky part is that we have a lot of self-fulfilling prophecies with breeds that happen because people think, oh, poodles are smart. So they get a poodle, they expect it's going to be smart. They treat it as though it's going to be smart and then they train it as though it's going to be smart and then it mm -hmm. becomes smart. And um. so these differences we see are sometimes because of environmental differences. And so that's kind of a different question than we're typically asking when we think about breeds. Um, also, it's actually people don't really know what the breeds are. Huh, um, interesting. genetically they've been mixed together from different breeds in the past. And so, and there's been a lot of selection pressures recently for like appearance rather than behavioral traits. Mm -hmm. And so for instance, like German shepherds are really heavily selected for their haunches to be at a certain angle mm -hmm. rather than about this herding ability. And so there's some really cool genetics research that's happening now that's looking and pinpointing 
which breeds are mixed from which other breeds and what are their histories. And then we can start to cluster them, the breeds in more sensible ways, because it's just, it's too much to look at one breed and compare it to another breed. You want to look at breed groups and compare those breed groups. Um, but we don't really know what the groupings are fully yet. There is one group of breeds that we know is different and is really fascinating called ancient breeds. Hmm. And so these are breeds like Shiba Inus, Sharpays, Alaskan Malamutes, Visenjis, these older breeds that um, actually end up looking a lot more like a dingo or a wolf. Um, oh, and they're right. looking back behavior in particular. Um, they tend to not look back as much and be more independent. Oh, interesting. Did you have some dogs of those breeds coming to the lab? Did they um, end up getting we, excluded? <laughs> no, we actually didn't have any of the ancient breeds come in for this study. I don't think um, they're kind of hard to find, um, especially purebred ancient breeds. Most of our dogs that come in are mixes. Mm-hmm. I see. The next question I have is kind of like, in more general, because I I used to have a dog at home, and right now I have a cat. And mm-hmm. having a cat and having a dog really makes me like feel like these are just these two species. They just like they have such different personality. Mm-hmm. And even though both are like wonderful pets, they just kind of interact with me like very differently. So I'm kind of curious about the in terms of this looking back behaviors. Do we know whether it exists in other domestic animals? Like other than dogs? Yes. So I don't know about cats specifically, but there is some work in goats um, that shows that goats look back. Um, So it's not just dogs. We do see this in other domesticated animals as well. So it seems like it's something that domestication in general has been shaping to some degree. Um, Goats even will be more likely to look back when the person's paying attention than if they're distracted. Huh, interesting. That's definitely not something that I would guess because I can, I guess I can think for dogs sometimes, like, I guess throughout history, it's like humans, dogs, they hunt together, they work together. But for ghosts, they're just like, they're doing their things and humans are, <laughs> they're doing human things. Do, do we have any hypothesis of why even ghosts will do this? Yeah, they're still around humans. Um, but we don't really know. And I think that it would be really useful to have um, other domesticated animals as well to look and see and get a better picture. But one thing we know when we think about domestication is that dingoes are less likely to look back than Mm -hmm. um, dogs, but more likely than wolves. So it does seem like at least when we think about self-domestication that both um, self-domestication and artificial selection have shaped this trait to some degree. So that's kind of as far as we know about that question. So dingo is kind of fell between domestic dogs and wolves? Yes. Yeah. I guess not a lot of our listeners will be familiar with this uh, species, I guess, dingoes. Um, Can you say more about what's the current status of this, this group of animals? And what other than looking back behavior, do we know anything else that's kind of like fall behind, uh, fall between the dogs and wolves behaviors? Yes. Um, so um, like I mentioned, a little bit elaboration on the story I was explaining before is about 50,000 years ago, there is this very wolf-like animal in Asia 
went through the self-domestication process up until around 14,000 years ago is when we know that started for sure. And so self-domestication progressed for about 7,000 years. And then from Asia, seafarers went to Australia and Papua New Guinea and took these animals with them that were self-domesticated. Then they went back into the wild and they evolved into dingoes that we know today that have been through self-domestication but have not been artificially selected by humans since they've been in the wild in Australia. And so dingoes are really interesting because they give us that snapshot. And they're very, it's very interesting to work with them. So they're about the size of um, a large dog, um, much smaller than wolves. Wolves are huge. People are always surprised. When you think you think you know how big a wolf is, think even bigger because wolves are a huge animal. Um, dingoes are more like the size of a larger dog to a medium-sized dog um, for females. And they live together in small family units and they come in a couple of different genetic varieties. So there's alpine dingoes that live in the South of Australia. Remember Australia is in the Southern hemisphere. So it's actually um, colder in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, they live in the Southern hemisphere and then there's the, or the Southern part of Australia. Then there's the desert dingoes that live in Northern Australia. And so we think these two different um types of dingoes actually came to Australia at different times because whenever Australia and Papua New Guinea were actually initially connected by a land bridge um, 7,000 years ago when they came over with seafarers. And then we think that land bridge filled over and then they came again um, Mm. with uh, on ships. And so basically that's the dingoes story. And personality wise, they, so sometimes people have heard about this dingo ate my baby. Have you heard of this? No, not really. That's <laughs> no. it's getting to be. <laughs> there was a court case where someone thought that a dingo had taken a baby from a campsite. Um, and the dingo got a really bad rap from that. And it's actually not clear at all that a dingo did this. It's very complicated. Um, but people tend to have this impression that maybe dingoes are really aggressive from this story. And they're actually very sweet. Almost all my Facebook profile pictures are of dingoes giving me kisses. Um, They're very cuddly and sweet. They tend to be really, they take a long time to earn their trust. So they're actually kind of more like a cat than a dog in some ways where Mm -hmm. they take a while to warm up to people. But once they do, they're like really sweet and really love to cuddle. Um, they're also very smart. Um, they can, they're really good escape artists. Mm. Um, we have some various studies that do different types of puzzles with dogs and dingoes and the dingoes always outclass the dogs on the puzzles, um, by a lot. So, um, that's kind of the, the dingoes story. They live in a very complex social environment in Australia because, they're seen as a pest um, Mm. historically. And so they've been, there's even money for dingo scalps that you can get, like if you bring dingo scalps back. But there's been a lot of progress recently because the dingo is Australia's apex predator. They don't have another apex predator. Uh, What does apex predator mean? Oh yeah, apex predator is like top predator, um, Mm. the, the top of the food chain, basically. And so Australia doesn't have many of those and they have a lot of 
issues with like overpopulation of rabbits and cats Mm. and things like that. And the dingo is a really important part of their ecosystem. And so they've kind of been like people have done with wolves in North America by when you lose too many of them, then the ecosystem gets out of balance. Mm. And so dingoes are starting to become appreciated again in Australia only in the past several years. Um, But it's been quite a battle um, to get them recognized. But the thing that's really cool is recently they've become recognized as their own species, Canis Mm -hmm. dingo. Um, Because before people thought they were the same species as a dog, but we can see that dogs and dingoes and wolves are all, they're all kind of technically the same species because they can all breed together. Mm-hmm. but they're separate subspecies because they um, show many different behavioral characteristics that are different um, and other differences as well. Are you allowed to keep a dingo as a pet? In Australia, you are. Um, you are? You are. It's an interesting pet to have because they're uh-huh. so independent. Uh-huh. Um, and people talk about how you can teach a dingo what you mean when you tell them a command, but they'll decide if they want to follow it or not. Oh, um, interesting. So if it's you say really like a cat, it's, it's really like a cat. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. I can imagine like some dog's owner at dog park when there's a dingo showing up, will have a very interesting story to tell. The dog yeah. is like, that guy is just weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fascinating. And I guess I, I can't help but wonder, um, I guess another dog slash wolf-like species that we commonly see, at least in North America, is coyote. Mm-hmm. And it's also another, I guess, species that's really around people. Like there are just a lot of pictures of coyotes just literally walking very populated cities. So mm-hmm. do we know in what sense the coyote's behavior might or might not be similar to dingoes. Do we know whether coyote went through the self-domestication process at all? That's a great question. So coyotes are sort of on a separate line from wolves and dingoes and dogs. So they're like a separate species from that. Um, so genetically they're different and they haven't gone through um, this sort of self-domestication process. They there hasn't been much research at all on coyotes. And I think that it's definitely like a wide open space for research. There's starting to be a bit of research on them. I'm not as familiar with it, but um, I think that they, you're right that they come into human areas. And so Mm -hmm. we might think that they might be showing some signs of self-domestication. That would be really interesting to test. Um, I don't know if it's been long enough um, to have that selection pressure be powerful enough. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how long coyotes have been around human camps. Oh, interesting. Because I guess city is kind of like a recent invention of humans. And probably before that, they might not even be like interested in coming near yeah, humans at all. Exactly. It's like the sprawling suburban area is kind of like <laughs> kind of eating away their homes rather than de- them coming to us. That's very interesting. Yeah. So I'm not sure, but I think that that would be a really cool population to test. One of the coolest populations to test for self-domestication though, is actually foxes. Oh, um, specifically there's this population of foxes in Siberia mm-hmm. that they've been artificially selecting, but in a way that mimics what self-domestication 
would have been doing. And so they, there's this amazing book that's called um, How to Tame a Fox and Build a Dog. Mm-hmm. And it's all about this um, process they went through with these foxes. And it was during Soviet Russia when it was actually illegal to do genetics research. And so they were doing all of it under the guise of um, making foxes better for using their coats. Oh, interesting. Um, And so it's a really fascinating book. Um, But basically they would take the foxes that were most comfortable coming towards the front of the cage when a human was there, and they would breed those animals together. And then over the course of relatively few generations, I never remember the number of generations, but pretty few, these foxes looked a lot like dogs. They'd start wagging their tails to see people. Um, And that's a long journey from a wild fox that's really standoffish and kind of like will hiss at you and things like that. And are those self-domesticated foxes still like somewhere in Russia? Yep, they living still, they're life? still doing research with them. Yes, they've still been going on for generations. Um, and so people still do research with them. And um, I think some of them people like try to get as pets too. Will they make a good pet? I don't know. That's like something I, I would definitely know. have <laughs> They're very dog-like. I'm not sure about how good they are at being housebroken. Um mm. I don't know much. I haven't looked into it because I'm definitely a dog person and mm-hmm. stick with the dogs. Yeah. Speaking of dog person, do you have a dog? I have three dogs. You have three dogs. I am not surprised at all. Do you, <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, do you have like any insights that you've got from doing your research that kind of help you raise your dog? Um, I think actually most of the insights that I've got is from working with lots of dogs. I've really learned how to read dog cues and understand what dogs want and what they don't want, because a lot of our whole goal in the lab is, is to make dogs have the best time when they come in and they do a study. And so we're really sensitive to dogs cues that they're wanting to continue something or they want to change to do a different activity. And that, that has definitely made me better at reading my own dog's cues. If I, I ask you to give like a very short tips or like a couple of tips for new dog owners or oh. owners of dogs who do not know how to read their dog tips, what might be some like really cool things that you would point out? Yeah. So I think that paying attention to some behaviors that can show that the dog's feeling a little bit anxious and then trying to change what's happening to make them less anxious. So things that are people are surprised or anxious behaviors are tail wagging can be an anxious behavior. So if it's like a really rigid tail wag, or if it's tucked between their legs and wagging, Uh that actually can mean that dogs are feeling anxious or um, on edge. Uh Um, Also, if um, dogs are doing behaviors that seem like they're out of place, like if the dog yawns, but they're not tired, that's actually a really common stress behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, if the dog starts scratching, um, that's a common stress behavior. We call these displacement behaviors. Um, they're behaviors that are out of context and are repetitive mm-hmm. and that can show that your dog's anxious. And so then you can kind of say like, Hey, what's happening? Like maybe there's something that I'm doing that my dog is uncomfortable with. Um, maybe I should stop doing that and just reassess and let the dog kind of decide what we're going to do next. Um, so I would say that would be one of my biggest 
suggestions is because sometimes people don't realize their dog's giving a cue that they're feeling upset. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's like one main one. Also, if the dog's showing the whites of their eyes, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the whites of their eyes, that's a sign of stress behavior. And there's a lot of um, like, you can look online and look for um, stress behaviors in dogs. And there's like good pictures and Mm -hmm. videos and stuff. Um, I'd say that's one thing. Um, The other thing is that uh, there's some really good research that shows that the guilty look in dogs is not really a guilty look. Oh, Um, that's actually a question I would like to ask because I know there are dogs don't really want to make eye contact or like, uh apparently, uh you know, who like, who made them home ass in the living room. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so they make this expression, but there's been, um, three different, really good studies that have looked at this and it seems like it's more of an appeasement behavior. Like the dog knows that you're upset. And so they do this suite of behaviors and the dog doesn't know that it's because you think that they're guilty, that they're not getting in trouble as much trouble, but like, (laughs) they definitely don't seem to experience guilt. Um, so that's, that's one kind of fun fact that I think a lot of people, that's an easy one to anthropomorphize. Oh, interesting. Someone's like, no, I don't feel bad, but I just want you to feel good. Is that a good way of saying it? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I guess we started our conversation by talking about like communication. And I think toward the end, we're also talking about a little bit like those behaviors. Actual question that I do have about what you're sharing about those stress behavior is I wonder to what extent those behaviors are something dogs do like as an emotion regulation thing mm. and how much of them is to communicate because as humans, there are things we do. It's like, it's not as if we want to tell the other people that we are like anxious, it's more of like, yeah, this feels good for us. So do we know how much of it is kind of like for us versus for themselves? I think it's for themselves. I think that a lot of it is just like, it's just a reaction to feeling um, anxious that it's just the way that their body reacts to that. I think that, um, their main communication that they would use would more be like warnings of like growling, like, you know, like back off. Um, That's definitely like a communicative one. Um, I think they, they, I guess there are some things they can do with their eyes. I'm now that you mentioned it, I'm curious about their eyes, like how much what they're doing with their eyes is communicative or just a reaction to their aroused state. Um, I'm not sure. That would be a cool question, though. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay, so I think we are kind of low on time, and normally we end up the conversations with something forward-looking. So I guess I'm wondering. You mentioned that you are currently running something very similar of like the study that we talk about today online, but I'm also kind of curious uh, whether you would like to share something about where to bring this work uh, forward. Now that we know that when dogs are looking back to humans, it's not because they're like just like over relying on humans. Yeah, I think that the main follow-up we're doing right now is that Zoom study um, that I was talking about. I think um, I'm not the only one who's trying to piece apart how much this behavior is a help-seeking behavior versus another type of behavior. But I think knowing how much dogs are paying attention to human attentional state will help us answer that even further, because if they pay attention to whether the human's attending or not, that's suggesting it is communicative because there's no need to communicate with someone that's not paying attention to you. Mm. There's no, they're not going to receive that communication. So we're really excited to see what that study shows us. Um, I think that'll be another important step in 
since it's not that they're overly reliant on humans, what is it? Um, mm-hmm. So we kind of showed what it's not in this mm-hmm. uh, first paper. And I think we're exploring more what it is in future research. Oh, that's so interesting. Maybe we'll just end our conversation on this very like a suspension note. And thank you again for joining on the podcast today. It's wonderful talking to you. And I feel like I learned a lot. of. Yeah, it was great to talk to you as well. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. Or if you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics for the podcast, you can click on the link to the survey attached in the show notes or reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.